Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Matt Burnett. Hello, Matt. Hello. Coming up this week, we speak to atmospheric scientists and aid agencies to find out how Typhoon Haiyan has affected the Philippines. We find out where in the world dogs first evolved from wolves, and we discover the new technologies being used to restore everything from old Doctor Who episodes to a human heart. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, before we get stuck into the news, our scientific teaser for you to ponder on the show this week is when do you think the first cataract operation was ever performed to restore vision. Our theme this week is restoration and renovation. When do you think the first cataract operation was performed to restore vision? Tell us if you think you know, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now it's time to take a look at what's been making headlines around the world and I'm sure you've all heard that the Philippines in the last week have been hit by Typhoon Haiyan, which has affected over 11 million people and displaced more than 600,000 from their homes. But what exactly is a typhoon? And was there any warning of this extreme storm? Professor Hans Graf, Head of Atmospheric Scientists at the University of Cambridge. Well, a typhoon is a, a huge whirlwind that develops over warm waters. The threshold would be about 28 degrees. These typhoons stop from a very small tropical depression, so a low-pressure system. And if they reach warm waters, they can attract more energy from the warm water by water vapour evaporation then intensify and finally turn into a very strong system. Another condition that has to be met is that there are no strong shear winds in the atmosphere. Only under these conditions, very warm water and no shear winds in the atmosphere, extremely strong storms can develop. So basically, it's a small storm that just picks up more and more energy from the hot surface water in the sea. And as long as it's not blown apart by strong winds, that's when it can develop into a typhoon. What are the conditions when this typhoon hits land? Well, it depends on the strength of the typhoon. We have wind speeds observed up to more than 300 kilometers per hour. So that's extreme wind speeds. Most of the very strong typhoons have wind speeds between 180 and 240 or so. But there is a number of those which we call the superstorms, super typhoons, which exceed these 240 kilometers per hour wind speeds. So there seems to have been an increase in the number and severity of these super typhoons in the Philippines area. What are some of the factors that could be contributing to this? Well, there could be two factors. One would be the increase in sea surface temperature. And we have observed, indeed, since the mid of the 1980s, an increase in sea surface temperatures over the Indian Ocean, which then spread over the Western Pacific. And it arrived at the Western Pacific about in the mid-90s. And that is exactly when we started to see more of those very strong typhoons. With this most recent storm in the Philippines, how much notice did meteorologists get? And are there any things that we can do better in the future to better prepare for these kind of storms? Well, actually, the preparation for this recent storm was very good. We can't do anything about the pathway of this storm, but the forecasts are indeed very good. The area that was hit was exactly forecasted, and uh, even the wind speeds were nearly forecasted. The forecast did not just go to 300 kilometers an hour, 
but 280 or so were forecasted. So people were prepared. The problem is that the structures, so the housings, are so light built because people are poor. And so they can't sustain these strong winds. The only thing you could do is give the people better means to have stronger houses. Hans Graf from the University of Cambridge. So people did have some warning of the typhoon coming, but the storm and the storm surge, the big rush of water that was brought in from the sea, was far too strong for their shelters. One resident from Mindanao, which is the second largest and most southerly of the Philippine Islands, told us about her experiences. I'm Carla Medrano from the Philippines here in Mindanao. We know this was coming. We had warnings. We knew of the tsunami in Japan, but then a storm surge, we never <laughs> we never experienced it here in the Philippines. So just talk us through what it was like when the weather came. What was the storm actually like? What were people doing? What were they saying? Well, some of the people in the lowlands were already in the evacuation centres. Unfortunately, these are not strong buildings. The storm was very terrible. Like the storm would suck the sea up and then throw it back at the village or the city. How long did it go on for? Some would recount that stood ashore for one and a half hours, some of them two hours. So it it was fast um, and furious. It it didn't go on for a long time, but when it was there, it was incredibly powerful. Yes, they would describe it as being inside a washing machine. It was so terrible. Even strong buildings are hit. And so what is the scene on on the ground now? What does it actually look like out there now? The city smells so awful because there are so many dead people all over the place. Like they're asking for body bags and the authorities are asking them to bury them even if it's not so deep because they also fear for the health of the people who who survive. What about um, supply of basic things like food and drink? Tacloban City has been, there's an outpour of help really of basic necessities like food and water and even clothing. But then in the remote areas, I think they're starting slowly to come in. Uh, In the news last night, I can still hear people asking for help because food has not reached them. Are people able to find out what's happened to loved ones and things like that? There is one place where the signal is very strong. That's where everybody goes. The the government just provides them with cell phones so that they can contact. So what do you need people to do? What's really needed now to try and help people? In our part, we are volunteering for segregation of goods and all everybody wants is um, all the help should be given to Tacloban. We are thankful to the United Nations, to foreign countries for helping, and even prayers will really help us. Thanks to Carla Medrano for sharing her story. We're joined now by Helen Richards from Plan UK, one of the aid agencies involved with the relief effort in the Philippines at the moment. Helen, what is Plan UK? Plan UK is a global charity. We work in 50 countries around the world doing both kind of long-term development work and also emergency relief. So you guys are involved in this current Philippines disaster relief effort. As we heard from Carla, all of the communications have been destroyed and a lot of the road networks and things like that are damaged. How do you, first of all, get the aid in? And second of all, how do you know where to deliver it? How do you know where these displaced people, the the ones who are most in need, where they're situated? 
Absolutely. It's, it's a challenging logistical environment. You know, the Philippines is composed of thousands of small islands. And as you say, infrastructure has been severely damaged with roads, bridges, impassable. So a lot of agencies like PLAN have been working in the Philippines for a long time, for PLAN over 50 years. So we have good links with communities where we're working, good links with local authorities, municipalities. And it's about using those networks as much as possible to get information on, you know, areas that have been most affected. Given the challenging logistical environment, it's also about exploring as many different ways as possible to get aid to affected areas. So planes, helicopters, boats, trucks, or a combination of any of them. So there are obviously lots of health concerns. We heard from Carla that there are still corpses in the streets and obviously there will be water everywhere um, and sewage systems will have been damaged or overflowing. How afraid are you of disease spread, things like cholera and other waterborne diseases? Yeah, in the aftermath of any crisis like this, you know, the spread of infectious diseases is a huge concern. So at the moment, you know, the absolute priority is food and access to clean water and shelter. So water purification tablets, access to drinking water. I mean, it's a huge priority for agencies on the ground. So if listeners want to contribute to the relief effort in the Philippines, how can they best get involved? So we're encouraging people to donate to the DEC, which is the Disasters and Emergencies Committee, and that brings together the 14 leading UK aid agencies. And if you donate money to the DEC, that money will get to people affected on the ground. Thanks very much, Helen, from Plan UK. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Matt Burnett. On to more science headlines now. And this week, scientists have uncovered a powerful new way to wipe out chronic or persistent infections. Now, this is a phenomenon that was first uncovered something like 70 years ago. Scientists realised that if you grow bacteria, about one in a million of those bacteria will be not genetically different. They'll be genetically identical to all of the population except they will be in a sort of suspended animation. They'll be in a quiescent state, like they're asleep. And this means that if you put antibiotics onto those bacteria, the ones that are growing very fast tend to be wiped out, but the ones that are in this quiescent state are very often left behind. And in the context of, say, a wound or a deep-rooted infection, or if someone has an implant in their body, for instance, a hip replacement or similar sort of structure, if you get these bacteria on that surface, they're very hard to get rid of. And people have these chronic grumbling infections where you put someone on antibiotics and they're well when they're on antibiotics, but as soon as you stop the antibiotics, the problem comes back. And we think it's because of these persisting bacteria. Well, now there might be some new hope for this because there's a paper in the journal Nature this week. It's by a researcher called Kim Lewis and his colleagues. They're at Northeastern University in Boston in the US. And they've been doing tests on a newish antibiotic that was first discovered in 2006. And it's got a very interesting name, this. It's called ADEP, A-D-E-P. And the reason they call it that is because the molecule is actually acyldepsipeptide. Easy for me to say, not so easy to remember, so that's what it gets called ADEP. And what it does is it goes into a microorganism and inside bacteria there is a mincing machine which is called CLIP-P. And the point of this mincing machine is that when cells are growing they often make stuff which is defective. You might make some protein, for example, that's the wrong shape or it's folded up wrong. And if it were allowed to accumulate it would have a deleterious effect on the microorganism. So you need to break it down. And that's what this CLIP-P mincing machine does. It has a tiny little hole in it And these abnormal proteins get threaded through this tiny hole and ground up. And if you put these ADEP, ADEP molecules on, they go onto this mincing machine and it's like jamming a crowbar in it. It opens the pore up so it becomes much, much larger. And now anything in the cell can fall into it 
and be eaten. And effectively, if you put this molecule on bacteria, they eat themselves from the inside out and they all die. And what this group have done is they've said, well, well, what happens if we try this on these persistent chronic infections? So they do a series of experiments both on bugs in the dish. They use bugs in what is called a biofilm, which is a structure the bacteria form and they grow on surfaces, for instance, on medical implants. And they even try this in mice, which have got deep infections in their thigh muscles, which are really hard to treat. And they find that in all those cases... A dose of this stuff plus a normal antibiotic, which can kill off any bacteria that are actively growing to stop resistance occurring, will wipe out the bugs and sterilise all of those situations. Well, that sounds like excellent progress in what is a global issue uh, of microbial resistance. There's been more progress in, in another worldwide issue, and that's the effort to save the rainforest. This week, uh, a group of researchers from the University of Maryland teamed up with NASA and Google to produce a new worldwide map of the world's forests that's been tracking deforestation from the year 2000 until 2012. Now, the great thing about this map is not only does it cover the whole world, it's also incredibly detailed, down to a resolution of 30 metres, which means that the data is actually locally relevant as well, and countries and even states within those countries can use this data to help them in their fight against illegal logging and other deforestation activity. Can I just ask you, Matt, why is this novel? Because we've been looking at the world from space with satellites for a really long time. So what's special about this study? Well, up until now, we've been relying on countries to self-report their deforestation rates, which is obviously not the most reliable source of data. Uh, and it's only now that really we've got the computing power to process all this information. So they used the satellites from NASA and then the, the research tools from the University of Maryland to work out the deforestation rate and to identify the forests from this imagery. But all that data in itself would have taken 15 years to run through one computer. That's where Google came in. And they used what they call massively parallel processing, but what the layman would call cloud computing that they use for Google Earth. And they plug this into that system and they managed to get through it in a matter of days. So they have taken all this wonderful imagery from space, crunched it down to produce a map of the entire world's forestry. And because I presume they're using the same sort of processing for every area it's all objective and directly comparable so we can now use this as a benchmark to see what is going on in brazil or indonesia or any other territory from here on in exactly there's a fair comparison across the whole world so it's really a great way to keep these countries accountable because there's no wheedling out you can have a direct comparison of these different forested areas across the whole world any initial data from it well they've had a few interesting findings mainly bad news unfortunately in this 12-year time period, they've tracked a global loss of 2.3 million square kilometres. That's about twice the size of South Africa. In that same time period, there's been a replanting effort of about 800,000 square kilometres, which is only a fraction of that land. But there has been some good news. Brazil has obviously been the poster child of the Save the Rainforests effort, and they've claimed that they've been cutting down on their deforestation. And the initial news is that this map seems to have supported that. So deforestation in Brazil from 2004 till 2011 actually dropped 50%, which is pretty good going. Unfortunately, that was more than offset by deforestation elsewhere in the tropics in places like Paraguay, Indonesia, Malaysia and Cambodia. But I guess it's a first step in what's probably going to be a long battle to save our rainforests. But at least now we have a tool to help us. Thank you, Matt. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Matt Burnett. Our scientific teaser this week is related to our theme, which we'll begin to explore later in the programme, which is all about repair, 
regeneration and restoration. And we want to know, when do you think the first cataract operation was performed? If you think you know the answer, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now this week, reports suggest that the 2013 opium harvest in Central and South Asia has hit an all-time high. But what is opium? Well, here is the quickfire science with Kate Lamble and Simon Bishop. Opium is a dried extract from unripe opium poppy seed pods. Depending on the plant variety, the extract can contain between 19 and 91% alkaloids. That's chemicals including the painkillers morphine and codeine. Although a small chemical modification can convert morphine to heroin, opiates in general have been used for centuries as medicinal painkillers and anaesthetics. Opium first spread across European and Asian empires between the 10th and 13th centuries, but its use is recorded even earlier than that. The Ebus Papyrus, an Egyptian medical text, even prescribes opium to calm noisy children. The British traded silver and opium from India to China in return for silk and tea. But in 1838, with opium addiction on the rise and demand for silver declining, the Chinese stopped all trade. This led to two wars. In the end, China reluctantly signed treaties with the French and British, allowing trade to continue and opening up Chinese ports to Western influence. Morphine for use in medicine was first isolated from opium in 1804 and named after Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams. When receptors in the brain and spinal cord are activated by endorphins, pain neurons can't fire. Morphine takes the place of these endorphins to have the same effect. But it's not just poppies that make morphine. We can too. Human white blood cells can release morphine into the blood to act as a hormone on neighbouring cells. Opium-based anaesthetics have many side effects though, including sickness and confusion. So modern surgery usually uses non-opioid chemicals. Morphine is, however, still commonly used as a painkiller. Because opium can be used in recreational drugs, opiate drug screens are common. In 1990, a veteran police officer in the United States, who had never broken any laws, failed one of these tests, when all he'd done was eat four poppy seed bagels. Poppy seeds contain anywhere from 4 to 200 milligrams of morphine per kilogram, though, so you'd need to eat a lot of seeds to feel any effect. Kate Lamble and Simon Bishop. And you can get hold of all of our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash quickfirescience. Now, as always, if you want to catch up on any of the news we're covering on The Naked Scientists, you can find the references and the links to them on our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. And if you'd like to get in touch with us to answer our quiz question, we want to know, when do you think the first cataract operation occurred? You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Mark in Bletchley got in touch and he says, was it the 1860s to the 1900s? Not quite, Mark. A bit before then. Now, Matt, uh, are you a fan of dogs? Uh, definitely more of a dog man than a cat person. Well, you might be intrigued to know then, well, where did dogs come from? Because one of the big questions is, we know they came from wolves. We know they evolved from a wolf into a dog sometime in recent history. 
probably between 10 and 20,000 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I thought the popular wisdom was that it was Chinese dogs. Is that is that right? It's a bit contentious, actually, because researchers have had a number of theories about this. Some have suggested that Europe was the place where the modern dog evolved from wolves by humans domesticating grey wolves. Others have suggested China. We've got remains going back up to 30,000 years of dogs, but those really old ones are in Europe. And the oldest Chinese remains are about ten to 15,000 years. So what a group of researchers this week, this is Olaf Thalman, who's at Turku University in Finland. He's got a paper in science this week. What they've done is to say, let's try and nail this using genetics. So they have gone and got about 18 different specimens of these very early dog-like creatures from Europe. And they have extracted what is called mitochondrial DNA because mitochondria are structures inside cells that have their own DNA, which you directly inherit from your mother. They're also quite resilient and robust, so they're a good signal of where something has come from. And they've read the genetic code from these dog specimens from up to 35,000 years ago. And they've compared them with more than 100 modern dogs, modern wolves, and modern wolves from the Middle East as well. And what they find is that all modern dogs are much more closely related to these ancient genetic sequences from dogs that were knocking around in Europe up to 30,000 years ago compared with anything around today. And it looks like anything from China would therefore have to have been knocking around from a very early time point in order to have predated what we have in Europe. So it looks like dog domestication occurred in Europe it looks like the date was probably 15,000 years or previous to that time. And the interesting thing about this date timeline of 15 to 20,000 years ago is that coincides with what we call the last glacial maximum. And that was when there was an ice age and there were loads of mammoths wandering around and humans were hunting what they call megafauna. And they suggest that perhaps, and this is what they say in the paper, conceivably, proto-dogs could have taken advantage of carcasses left around by early hunters, assisting them in the capture of prey, or dogs provided defence from large competing predators at kills. And so we think that was all going on in Europe. So where do these Chinese dogs come in? Do these scientists suggest that the dogs first domesticated from 15,000 BC or, or earlier... Uh, then migrated or were taken by migrating humans to China. And that's where we found those ancient remains. Yes, good question. So they've actually started to begin to look at that question because if you look in South America, you can find samples from there. And those dogs are also very closely related to the European animals. And the people would have taken them with them. So we think that where the people went, the dogs went and they took European dogs with them. And so therefore what you find in China will probably reflect what we have in Europe. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Matt Burnett. Our main topic for the show this week is that we're looking at how we can repair and restore things, whether that's human hearts through to concrete healing itself. And to kick us off, Kate Lamble to look a look at the restoration of one well-known sci-fi classic. It's been a staple of British life for 50 years now, but when the BBC recorded over old videotapes, many episodes of Doctor Who were lost. Earlier this year, however, nine missing episodes of the classic sci-fi series from the 1960s were found in storage at a Nigerian TV station. They've now been restored, so I headed down to the BBC in London to meet producer Paul Venezes, who put them back together. I asked him what condition you'd expect to find film in after so many years. If the conditions are actually perfect then the films will be as good as when they were originally made. But we don't live in a perfect world. 
16mm film is what we're talking about. The first issue that you've got is they were scratched and they had cuts in them where broadcasters had put commercials in and then removed them again. The glue in the tape was drying out. On the emulsion side, it had reacted with the emulsion and had gone very sticky. That glue was seeping onto that film and discolouring the film. And then the other problem that we have goes back to the 40s. I guess, actually, it goes back way before that, when film was on nitrate stock, and nitrate was very explosive. So then Kodak and various other film manufacturers got rid of nitrate because it was basically dangerous and created safety film, a cellulose acetate film. And this is the film which is now causing us problems because if it's stored in humid, warm conditions, the acetate in the film starts to break down and it basically leaches acetic acid. So this acetic acid gives you this characteristic vinegar smell coming from the film. And the film goes from being a bit smelly to, in really bad situations, it will either plasticise, so it'll leach out the acid into the emulsion and then the whole thing becomes a soup, or it will shrink. And the emulsion, which is gelatin sitting on the surface of this acetate base, gelatin doesn't shrink, but the base does. And so the whole thing separates apart and you've got an unplayable film. The problem with these films is if we put them on a telecine machine to transfer them as soon as we got them out of the cans, they would have just fallen apart on the machine. So principally what we're doing here is we're not trying to restore the physical film. Our ultimate intention is to restore the image. And so once the films leave my hands, they're wound off, and within minutes they're transferred in high definition, and then once it's in a form that we can work with, that's the point where the actual image restoration begins. One of the newly restored Doctor Who episodes was The Web of Fear, featuring one of the iconic antagonists of the Patrick Troughton era, the Yeti. In the story, the Doctor encounters these hairy robotic monsters on the London Underground, so I was alarmed to hear that I was going to have to head onto the central line to meet the digital restoration expert who Paul passed the footage onto. I mean, I think this carriage is clear of Yeti. I'm Peter Crocker, and I'm a video restoration specialist at SVS. I take the high-definition video files, load it onto my computer system, and then I can start getting rid of dirt, scratches, generally manipulating the image because it's all ones and zeros and pixels at that stage. Why do you want it in HD? The original Doctor Who presumably wasn't in HD. While the underlying image is quite low resolution... The actual dirt is there in very high definition. Now, if we were to scan just in a normal television definition, then a scratch might be one pixel wide, and the underlying image might be crossing through very fine detail, someone's eyeball or someone's hair. And to remove that scratch without leaving an obvious mark behind is very, very difficult. So the HD is to see the dirt rather than the original image? That's absolutely right, yes. Can we see one of these pictures of how it came to you? What does it look like, something 30 years old, when it first turns up? Mm. We've got a bit here which is a film clip of a helicopter landing in a field. And if I play it, the image is actually very unstable. It's jittering up and down like mad, a little bit from side to side. There's an awful lot of dirt on it. There's black flashes across the screen, which is where the videotape was worn. It sort of looks like those antique photographs. What has that been impacted by? It's a combination of things. Some of the problems with the picture 
were there actually at the time, and it's part and parcel of what people would have accepted on their television. A lot of the damage that we see on programmes of this age is just wear and tear. There's a little bit here where there's been a splice and a couple of frames are really very badly damaged. They, for example, would have to be completely replaced by CGI. So how do you get rid of this? Do you have to go around taking each of those pixels like you would on Photoshop and erasing them? It's possible to do that if it's a small area affected. Often there are problems with the geometry changing as well because the whole film has warped. And in those cases, we employ slightly more clever techniques, really. And that involves analysing the motion of individual pixels from surrounding frames. And by actually assessing the motion of each individual pixel in the image, you can map where they would be in the missing frames and you can actually generate completely synthetic replacements. We'll also use the same techniques of motion analysis to get rid of instability in the image. So we mentioned earlier the jitter of the film and after it's been fixed, running there now, all the jitter's gone and it's, it's rock solid. Can you show me how you'd get rid of a particular scratch, for example? So what we have here is a computer programme called Diamond one of several restoration software packages which is available. And what we're looking at now is quite a severely damaged section of an old Doctor Who episode where the tape was very badly scratched. And this would have been seen on the original broadcast, lots of long black lines and and many, many white dots and lines that are darting about. And you're sort of hopping through here, it's frame by frame. Is this restoration that you have to do frame by frame? Is that for the, for how this, long it takes? Yes, for, the, for, the, for this sort of damage, yes. If you're going through frame by frame with something that's as seriously damaged as this, how long does it take to do one episode? Then? Well, these were 25-minute episodes, and each episode took about two weeks to repair. So do you end up knowing the entire episode frame by frame by the end of those couple of weeks? <laughs> it's an odd situation. There are some programmes where, because technology has moved on, we maybe restored them 12 years ago and then we come round again. There have been a couple of occasions where I don't actually remember the programme, but I'll suddenly see a bit of dirt and I'll say, I remember that bit of dirt, which just shows what a bizarre thing the human brain is. Yes, definitely. We've just looked at these white dots and we've managed to remove, you know, five or six and improve one of these frames in a couple of minutes here. How satisfying is it to see the end result and see, oh, I've cleaned up all of that? When you compare the original... um, so this is the original with all the dots. With all the dots. And it's, it's not really... It's so watchable. distracting it watching is. it because you end up watching the dots move around rather than the people. Exactly. It's not, it's not really um, it's not adequate. So after it's been repaired, it... Um, you're, you're just watching the programme. It's completely transformed from watching the faults to watching the programme. Yes. And I suppose that's what you want in the end. Yes, that's right. I, I liken myself to being a window cleaner. I don't actually make the view any different, but... Hopefully it's a nicer experience for someone looking at the view because they're not spotting the dirty window anymore. Digital restoration expert Peter Compton and before him Paul Venezes from the BBC. And we heard from Mark actually, sent an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com and he said, my dad had the pleasure of working with Delia Derbyshire who was at the Radiophonic Workshop and worked on Doctor Who and other sound engineering techniques. Well, talking to Peter Compton, I realised just how important diehard fans are in this restoration process. Peter was trying to restore one of the soundtracks from one of these Lost Doctor Who episodes and it was just irretrievable. But luckily, they were aware of this diehard fan who had recorded all of the audio from these ancient 40-year-old Doctor Who episodes. So he asked them if they had the tape and he dutifully sent it in and actually that's the audio they've used for this old Doctor Who episode. So props to him. 
Now, 40-year-old film is one thing, but what about documents that are hundreds or thousands of years old? Well, I went to the Cambridge University Library to see how they repair ancient documents. Rebecca Goldie told me how they categorise the fragility of the manuscripts when they arrive. The collection that I'm working on actually arrives more in fragments. As you can see, they're kind of torn up, they've been eaten by insects, they've still got dirt on them from, well, some of them were found in cemeteries. They're all kind of falling apart in their various states. Some of them just have little holes in, other ones are literally being stuck back together. How do you determine what kind of work it needs to be done on each of the fragments? We need to assess the stability of the inks, seeing as what the text says is what's most important for the researchers. In order to do that, we look at the inks under a linen tester, which is like a tiny microscope, and we give it a category of one to three, where one is a stable ink and three is a really bad one. This is an example of one with category one, where we place the linen tester over the ink and use a sable hair brush over it. And as you look through, you will see the ink doesn't move. I'm looking through what's basically like a mini microscope, and I can see that as Rebecca brushes over it, a bit of the dust is being removed, but the letters are sticking onto the paper just fine. So that's a level one. That's one. We don't need to worry about that. We can go through conservation without worrying that we're going to destroy it. And then category three, if we just gently brush across it, we might actually brush away some of the ink, and that means that the rest of the conservation process could potentially damage the fragment. What methods can you use to conserve this without damaging the writing? First of all, we would try to see if it was possible to clean it under magnification. However, if this just seems like it's not going to work and is going to cause further damage, then we put the fragment aside for ink consolidation. Ink consolidation makes sure the writing remains stuck to the most delicate level 3 manuscripts. Lucy Cheng has been working on a method to conserve these fragile letters. We have researched um, into various consolidants and the result reveals that icing glass might be one of the possible solutions. Icing glass is an adhesive and in a lower concentration it could be used as a consolidant. It's known to be tacky and it works at a lower viscosity. What we like about it is that it's also chemically inert with a pH value of 6 to 7. So I can see here on your desk you've got a funny-looking packet full of, well, it looks like some exotic food. Is this icing glass? This is icing glass. So icing glass is basically made from the bladder of a sturgeon. Basically, the fish were prepared in such a way that the bladder is separated, cleaned, and dried. And this is what you see in front of you. You've got a big jar of little glass discs. Our plan is to run the solution through an ultrasonic mister and mist the solution onto the text area. And the hope is that the tackiness of the solution would help the ink resettle onto the paper. Okay, so you're basically spraying this very gentle adhesive over the old manuscripts Mm -hmm. and it'll stick the words down to the paper. And then at that point you can further clean them or repair the manuscript if needs be. Exactly. Even after sticking the ink back down, there's often further work that needs to be done. For example, folds in the parchment can make the text illegible. Mary French explained how these folds can be ironed out without damaging the fragments. 
one thing that we do typically, especially where the folds obscure text, is that we can humidify them and then unfurl them and press them flat so that text can be revealed and the objects can lie flat. And one way in which we do that is with the use of agar. It's derived from marine vegetable. It's uh, usually red algae. It's just the same stuff that I used in my microbiology degree. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things about conservation is that we are able to use materials that come from a variety of disciplines, I guess the word would be. So this piece right here was initially folded over. These at some point had been humidified and then pressed flat and certain areas had been folded over and remained that way once they've been pressed. It was probably about 100 years ago. This is a pretty large fragment that we're looking at here, but it's got some impressive holes in. What was the state of this when you first got your hands on it? So the interesting thing about these holes is that they were actually there when the scribe first wrote the manuscript. They were defects in the parchment itself during the manufacturing process. So these were probably tiny, tiny holes to begin with when the skin was fresh and unstretched. But as they stretched them during the parchment making process, the holes expanded. Um, and sometimes you'll see areas where the parchment has been stitched up prior to stretching in an attempt to avoid that. So anyway, with the folds, what I do is I take a piece of agar and then I put it on top of the fold like so just in the area where the fold is, so it's very targeted, very precise. And then I let it sit there and wait. Usually it's weighed down just on the sides to make sure that it has even contact with the surface of the parchment. And then once it's reached the level of optimum humidification, it just gets folded back over, pressed flat um, with silicone release paper to prevent sticking, and then some blotter to help wick away the moisture. It's kind of like a fancy way of steam ironing like I used to do this with my homework. If it got too folded up, you could just whack it under the steam iron and then the, humid, the moisture in the steam would help to flatten it out. Yeah, it's like that without the heat and it's less aggressive as a form of conveying moisture. Gentle ironing. Yeah, very, very gentle. <laughs> Thanks very much to Lucy Cheng, Rebecca Goldie and Mary French from Cambridge University Library. Now look, can we just... You were ironing your homework. Well, yeah, if you've what stuffed you it doing? in your pockets or whatever, and it's got to be presentable when it gets there, then you iron that homework, comes out good as new. You just ask these conservators. Where'd you get the iron from? At school? Oh, no, I'd do that. My my mum would be like, oh, your homework's a right mess. And you could normally scrape the mud off, but if you're going to get the folds out, got to get the iron on it. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Matt Burnett. We're talking about restoration, repair and regeneration on the show this week. Aligned with that, we have a quiz question we're asking about teaser. We want to know, when do you think the first cataract operations were being performed? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. We've heard so far Mr Gillett has rung us up in Cambridge and he says, uh, I think it was just after the Second World War. Uh, Ma on Twitter says, can't say the date, but didn't Renoir have a cataract surgery? Don't know about Renoir, but one other famous painter, Monet, definitely did. We've also heard from Bavesh, who says, what about ancient Egypt or ancient India? And Simon Waters speculates about 2000 BC, so a big date range there. Now, as we've heard, we can restore inanimate objects like books and film, but what about the restoration of living tissue? The human body has an amazing ability to heal itself, but sometimes it needs a bit of a helping hand. And I went along to the material science department in Cambridge University to speak to Ruth Cameron and, before her, Serena Best, to hear about their efforts to help tissues to repair themselves. 
We're trying to address all sorts of different problems that occur all over the body. Everything from orthopaedic problems where we have degeneration of the tissue with age and through trauma, but also looking at uh, regeneration of tissue when somebody's had a heart attack, for example, how can we help to repair the heart? So it sounds like a range of, in some instances, building a new body part to just implant versus actually building something that helps the body to put itself right. Yes, absolutely. And that is our ultimate goal, to think about the way in which we can encourage the body to self-repair. And in order to do this, we need to create an environment into which we want to encourage the body's cells to migrate. And how are you doing that? We're interested in producing porous structures, which we refer to as scaffolds. These pores are ones that are not just solid like an aero bar, but they actually allow the cells to migrate right into the centre of the implant and move around inside the implant so that uh, the body will hopefully repair itself in due course. So cells, blood vessels, and is the idea that this scaffolding will eventually disappear because the body will just dissolve it and replace it with its own tissue? Absolutely, yes. Ideal situation for any of the implants we're putting in in this particular application will be that we kickstart the body to repair itself and then over a matter of time the implant will disappear and will break down into to natural byproducts that can be then taken away by the natural system in the body. And Ruth, how are you making these scaffolds? So I've got one here. Um, this is a scaffold made out of collagen, which is one of the major proteins in your natural soft tissue. This has been made by an ice templating route using freeze drying. What we do is to take a very dilute solution of the collagen in water with some other bits and pieces in there as well. You freeze the whole thing. The ice makes ice crystals, but the collagen can't become part of those ice crystals and just gets pushed to the edges of these lots of tiny ice crystals. Then you sublime off the ice, which means that you can go straight from ice to water vapour and you're left behind with a kind of ghost structure of the original ice crystals which forms a porous structure of collagen and we can then stabilise that and it's this open porous structure that Serena was talking about that the cells can now go inside. It looks a bit like the packing foam that came with the last computer I bought when it came through the post. I mean it's that sort of polystyrene almost isn't it? So if I cut into that I would see what lots of interconnected little pores and holes and channels that cells could crawl into. That's exactly what you'd see. If you think about an expanded polystyrene, again, that's a kind of foamy structure. But the difference with this one is, of course, it's made of collagen, but it's also open pores. It means that the pores aren't closed, single entities. They're all connected up. And so there are pathways for the cells to go right into the centre of that and do what they need to do. That one looks like it came straight out of an ice cube tray in my freezer. Could you make any shape or size of those then? Yep, you can make a whole range of sizes and shapes, and not just macroscopically like this, which does indeed look a bit like an ice cube, but you can also think about the ways that the, the ice crystals can grow. One would then implant that into a tissue to make cells grow into it and do some kind of repair, but you might need different sorts of cells, different sorts of shapes, different, therefore, configurations to do repair in different tissues. We can, and we're increasing our knowledge of how to do that all the time. That's where a lot of the ongoing research is going. So that's thinking about the shapes of the pores and the architecture that you're trying to get to direct the cells. But there are other things that we can do as well. So 
it doesn't just have to be collagen within there that you can think about other biological macromolecules that are going to give different cues to cells. You need to think about the mechanics, how squashy it is, what the cells are going to experience, what the whole structure is going to experience more macroscopically, biomechanically. And you can also think about controlling the biochemistry along the surface of all these pores by putting peptide sequences on there. And that will mean that certain cells will want to sit on there or to migrate and other cells won't have the attachment sites. And so you can start to program what's going on within the structure. And Serena, what sorts of things with that technology can you now attempt to repair? We started off looking at cartilage repair. Cartilage being in joints? Yes, that's right. So uh, in particular, if you imagine the soft tissue in your knee joint, People have all sorts of tears and damage that can occur due to sporting injuries or just due to old age. So the original idea with these collagen scaffolds was to make them compatible both with the bone that we're putting it in contact with, but also give it the mechanical properties of cartilage. You make effectively a little patch that you could put into a joint which would replace the cartilage and then get it to regenerate itself in someone who previously had arthritis. That's right. We're also interested in developing the collagen scaffolds in the form of a heart patch. And so this is where we can put a patch onto the heart, have it stitched in surgically, but it will be there to deliver the cells to help a patient recover after a heart attack. Many thanks to Ruth Cameron and also Serena Best from Cambridge University's Department of Material Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Matt Burnett, and with Chris Smith. This week, we're looking at repair and restoration. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com or find us on Facebook. Now, when a building gets damaged, you can plaster up the holes or you can knock it down and you can start all over again. But wouldn't it be nice if the building could repair itself? Dr. Abir Al-Tabar from the University of Cambridge works on self-healing concrete. She's with us now. Hello. Hello. Is this possible? We hope so. And this is the work we've just started to do as a big research project, £3 million funded by the government and industry uh, with our collaborators at Cardiff and Bath Universities. And we're trying to develop self-healing construction materials. Given that you're spending that much money researching the problem, this means it must be costing industry a lot of money. Oh, absolutely, yes. So a huge amount of money is spent every year on repairing damaged structures. So why does concrete crack? Because it's effectively rock, isn't it? It is rock, but when concrete goes in tension, it cracks. If you have a beam and you apply load to it, some part of it goes in compression. It's stressed against itself and the other one is pulled out. So in other words, if you've got concrete being squashed, it's absolutely fine with that. But when you start getting bits of concrete stretched in some way, then you're going to get little cracks opening up. That's correct. So what sort of price tag is there on this worldwide then? And, And how do you remedy the problem at the moment? Oh, well, repairs cost a huge amount. So we're spending billions of pounds every year repairing damaged buildings and roads and infrastructure generally. And it's been left to deteriorate. So there's a huge amount of repair to be done. So how are you trying to make concrete that will fix itself when this happens? So our vision is to encapsulate self-healing elements within the concrete and actually we're just not talking about concrete we're talking about cement material so it's mortar and cement as well and grout and it's looking at microcapsules so little bubbles that contain healing agents like glue or resin and some bacteria that will precipitate sort of natural cement basically and seal the cracks and these things will be put into the concrete 
when it's being poured for the first time, will they? So they're in there. So should a crack happen, they can activate. That's correct. So this will refer to new concrete, but we can also use it for repairing existing structures where you would normally place a cement grad, for example. So you could place a self-healing cement grad so it doesn't crack again in the future. So why are you putting bacteria in there? Well, bacteria will basically produce um, limestone, which is our natural cement, and that will fill the cracks and seal them. How did the bacteria know to do that then? The bacteria will be placed dormant and then the nutrients were also placed separately. And when there's a crack and there's water ingress, the water will come in contact with the bacteria and the bacteria will come in contact with the nutrients and hopefully start producing limestone. So you're basically trapping these bacteria deep in this concrete. Are they living all this time or how do they survive trapped inside concrete? Yeah, the plan is they remain dormant until they're needed. So they're, they're woken up when their job to repair concrete comes around. Exactly. So what are some of the key applications you can see for this self-healing concrete? Obviously, it's one thing to replace a paving stone. That's, that's not a big deal. But I can imagine there are some instances where it's a, a real pain to have to repair concrete structures. Yes, that's correct. So we're looking, for example, at roads and infrastructure where you don't really want to have delays or you know cause disruption there's also incidents where you are unable to detect or inspect damage, uh, for example, oil wells or nuclear facilities. So are these the kind of facilities, uh, you've got an oil rig in the middle of the ocean, drilling down hundreds or thousands of metres underwater. Once they finish, they have to plug the hole. Is that plug one of these concrete structures that you're talking about? Cement, yes. And obviously, you can't be going down to the bottom of the sea to fix that up no. so I can yeah I can see where self-healing concrete would be ideal but equally are the pressures not incredibly high so how do the bacteria cope with being under those immense pressures and also if they're under a building surely the pressure inside the concrete is enormous too well the bacteria one idea is to encapsulate them in little capsules so the shell of the capsule will take all the pressure while the bacteria remains safe inside but then when the crack breaks open the capsule they're going to be exposed aren't they Sure. But I mean, this will be a big challenge. So part of the challenge is to ensure that the bacteria will survive under those conditions. Dare we ask what the time frame is? Well, we are hoping to do some trials actually within the next two years. So we have a target to produce something feasible in about a year and try that on perhaps the road section. Thank you very much. Abir Al-Tabar from the University of Cambridge. Now, Matt, we asked people this week, because the subject was repair, regeneration, restoration for the show, when was the first cataract operation? We had a lot of people who thought it was very recent, but actually the answer may well surprise you because the first evidence of documented cataract surgery, in fact, dates from India in 800 BC. So in other words, about 2,800 years ago. The description is by the Indian physician Sushruta, and he describes using a curved needle to push aside opaque matter in the front of the eye to clear vision. And there are also archaeological instruments that have turned up from about 2 AD in China. So it's clearly an operation that's been going on for a really very long time. The big question I've got is, did it work? I think it did, because the fact that people were documenting it and the fact that then over hundreds of years and then thousands of years later, people are still making instruments and doing this kind of thing suggests that they obviously had a success story from it. Very fascinating. Thanks, Chris. And finally, closing the show, Hannah's got the answer to this week's disgusting question of the week. This week, we slickly squirt into a question that Simon Ashby wrote in with. 
In the base of my mouth, below my tongue, I am sometimes able to eject a very fine spray of saliva out of my mouth. I know I am not the only person able to do that, as a friend of mine could do this at will. He would lift and move his tongue and produce a fine jet of saliva that squirted from his mouth. The question is, why are we evolved to be able to do this? It's called leaking, and it's pretty gross. But can you do it? And if so, why do you think it happens? To facilitate social bonding, perhaps. To find out, we speak to Professor Gordon Proctor from the Salivary Research Unit at King's College London. Hello. I have come across the occasional gleeker. Most saliva is made and secreted by major salivary glands. If you lift your tongue and look in the mirror, you can see the swellings or papillae, which are the ends of the tubes, that's the ducts, that takes saliva from one pair of submandibular salivary glands to the mouth. When we taste food, our salivary glands greatly increase the production and secretion of saliva. I think that you can gleek more effectively after having tasted foods that have a strong stimulus for salivation, for example, lemon sweets. So gleeking is probably achieved by the compression of the ducts of the submandibular glands by muscles in the floor of the mouth when you move your tongue upwards. And it may be that in gleekers, a large volume of saliva builds up in the ducts before being expelled. Thanks, Gordon. So gleeking is possible as salivary glands have evolved to squirt saliva from the mouth. Human saliva is 99.5% water, and the rest is electrolytes, mucus, glycoproteins, enzymes and antibacterial compounds. These help digest and lubricate food and prevent tooth decay. Usually we keep it inside our mouths, but gleekers take advantage of spit to project it from their submandibular gland out into the world. Gross. Now, Juliet doesn't spit in her garden or anywhere. She does sometimes lose her glasses there, though. Hi. Today in the garden, I was multitasking a bit too much, and part of this involved putting my glasses on top of my head. Naturally, they fell off. I looked everywhere but couldn't see them, even though they are bright purple and the garden is mulched in light tan straw. I found them close by where I had surely looked a minute before. Why didn't I see them the first time my eyes passed over that spot? So why is it that we sometimes overlook the obvious? Why could Juliet not find her glasses? She swears she's not blind without them. So what happened? Hannah Critchlow and the address to write to if you can help is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Same address if you'd like to send us any thoughts, comments or feedback for the programme. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, who include Helen Richards from Plan UK and Abir Al-Tabar from the University of Cambridge. Thank you also to Matt Burnett for joining me. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next week, we're going to be looking into the sense of smell, including how it works, why it varies between people and what would it be like if you lost it. The Naked Scientist is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and the Wellcome Trust and comes to you from Cambridge University. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.